Now let's turn to our Bibles today to the book of Romans chapter 1. The book of Romans chapter 1. And we will start at verse 7. Start at verse 7. The first six verses are really um, something of an introduction. Uh, In verse 7, the apostle gets down to business. So let's turn to Romans 1 and verse 7, and let's hear the Lord's word today. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means, now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. To the end ye may be established. That is, that I might be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I have purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Four. And maybe I'll ask you to pay attention to the three fours uh, that commence the next three verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Amen. We'll end our reading just there. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's unite in prayer, please. Father, we thank thee for this remarkable account of the church at Rome, its testimony far and wide going into all the known world. Lord, I pray today for the testimony of this congregation, this band of believers whom you have brought together to be living witnesses for the Lord. And I pray that you would come minister to each heart and speak through your word today. I take by faith the promised help of God the Holy Spirit. I take by faith the promise of power and utterance to speak the word of God. And I pray today that you will give to each brother and sister here, each hearer, ears to hear, hearts to receive, and grace to go and serve the Lord. Now minister to us and hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. These three fours, verses 16, 17, and 18, become a preacher's delight. Most preachers I know end up with three points to their sermon. And so we get a wonderful, biblical, clear outline in these verses. And the logic of the apostle is these are reasons why he is going forth with the gospel. For I am not ashamed 
I am going public. I'm not going to be a secret disciple. Now, Paul had just commended the Christians at Rome for their public ministry of the gospel. You'll notice in the verse 8 that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Can you imagine that? A feeble little group in Rome and their testimony is going out far and wide as merchants come and go to this hub city of Rome, as soldiers crisscross the Roman Empire, they come to Rome and they learn about Christians. And you may know that there were those even in the house of Caesar who became Christians. And this gospel was spreading out. There's just something about the gospel that makes it to catch fire and spread. And Paul noted this, and he commended them that their faith was spread across the world. And God does that. He has the ability, the reputation of multiplying things, like the little mustard seed, ever so tiny. And yet what he brings from one little seed is absolutely staggering and amazing. Most seeds multiply by a hundred. And so when the farmer goes in with his bag of, of seed and he scatters it in the ground, it turns into a truckload. This is the God who multiplies. And in the work of the gospel, we pray for that same multiplication. Now, will it make any difference if we be a church that is just meeting ourselves, faithful to the word, getting strengthened that we might be kept week by week and return and minister to one another, or if we go out and reach the lost and bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, the Bible says, and Jesus said, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we are not called to be secret disciples. Also, the Lord Jesus said, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Now that would be a terrible thing. If we shut down and say nothing, do nothing with this glorious gospel that we have, and on that great day, it is declared that we have been ashamed of it. And so this statement of the apostle, I am not ashamed, is a wonderful declaration. And we want to get right into his logic. Four, four, four in these verses 16 to 18. In the verse 16, his logic is this. The gospel of Christ is the sole instrument of God's power to save. There's no other way for a sinner to be saved. There's no other way that a Muslim will be delivered from his way of false religion, or any other religionist for that matter, or any of our family circle. Remember that every one of us are just one generation away from paganism, that blind unbelief that is natural to the heart of all. And Paul is very specific here that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Note that in this statement in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It doesn't stop there. It's the gospel or the good news of Christ. It's in this one unique, special person, our Lord Jesus. And this power 
resides in him. He has all power in heaven and in earth. And we see the power of God at work in him in his incarnation. The amazing account of our Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, planted in the womb of Mary, and she bringing forth a man-child, a baby boy in human flesh. And he is the God-man. And there is the demonstration of what Mary conceived to be or perceived to be impossible. But learn that all things are possible with God. And so this gospel is the power of God demonstrated in the person, the unique, unipersonality of our Lord Jesus. But it's also demonstrated in the power of his sinless life. Imagine one born as our Lord Jesus was into the filth of a stable in Bethlehem, brought up in poverty, mingling with the carnal and the depraved sons of Adam every day of his life for 33 years. But not a sin. Now that is outstanding. We could spend our day looking at the doctrine of that and the Bible's declaration of that in so many ways. And our Lord himself teaching of him, who doth convince me of sin? Not one. And the sinless life of our Lord Jesus is the very vehicle of his atoning death. It was the instrument God prepared him a body. He was sinless in that body because his offering was a sinless offering. His sacrifice was in the place of sinners. He died not for his own sin, but for our sin. And the power of God is in his supernatural person, God and man, in a sinless body, an offering that was perfectly acceptable to the very justice of God. And so we're not ashamed. This is not something to run from or hide or to think, well, maybe it's okay or maybe it's not. No, this is the power of God at work. Now, that power was also seen in his power to convert sinners. The power of his effectual call. You think of James and John, fishermen with their father. Brought up on the lake, daily fishing, mending nets. Ploying and toying with boats. It's a wonderful life. They seem to be what we would call middle class. They seem to be doing well. Quite a family. And yet the Lord Jesus comes along and says, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. There's a demonstration of this powerful, effectual call. If you're a Christian today, you've heard that call. Whatever your walk was, whatever your ways were, whatever world you were living in, whatever depths of sin you may have been in, God spoke to you and called you out of a world of Self, selfishness, even rebellion to God, he melted your heart. And as those disciples instantly left their boats and nets and followed the Lord Jesus, what power was in Christ? Now, this is a study for sociologists. What did they see in this man, this one who became their leader, just to drop all instantly. That's not normal. And they never regretted it either. That's the best part. They never regretted it. Because this was the entrance into a new life that they themselves went forth and preached. Then you have the testimony of the Apostle Paul. What a change. 
from a murderer of Christians to a preacher of the gospel. And here he comes writing here in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now I notice one more thing about the power here, and that is it's unto salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. That means it's a finished work. It's finished on the cross. It's finished in my heart. And it will be finished in glory. There's a great text, Philippians 1.6. People with pens, I would, I would ask you to write this one down. Philippians 1.6. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. My salvation, I can say that I am saved, I am being saved today, and I will be saved on that eternal day, because it's full salvation. That's another great hymn we have in our hymn book, full salvation, full salvation. My, what a gospel! Can we ever be ashamed of this? Never. Let us even be like that leper that was told, don't say a word about this, keep it quiet. But he couldn't. He had to speak. And that was the way with so many. And if you're born again and you're saved by grace, you cannot be silent. You know you're saved and you will be known to be saved. It will be evident in your life because this is the power of God unto salvation. So this is the first step in the apostle's logic. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And then we come to the second one, for. This is the same line of reasoning now. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Now, I call this the gospel of Christ is the revelation of God's righteousness. And you'll see how Paul worded it. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Nobody could ever have thought of this. Nobody could have dreamt it, imagined it. This is a heavenly truth. This is a doctrine that is not spawned in the brains of man, but comes from the heart of God himself, who has provided a perfect righteousness for every one of his people. And this is the big problem with sin. Sin pollutes. Sin destroys our standing with God. How are we ever going to be right with God? Or as Job put it, how shall a, a man be just with God? How shall we get on the place where we have full peace with God ever again? And it cannot be done on man's human terms. And you will either, man will either belittle the curse of sin, or he will fake a remedy that is just a false comfort. It's like going into an ER in hospital and you've got this terrible pain that's killing you and you feel like you're dying. And they examine you and they say, that's eh, nothing. Don't worry about it. Just go home. Take a, uh, what's that, come on a, a tablet and, and just have a nice rest and you'll be fine in the morning. But you don't feel that way. Or sometimes what people will do for people who have this idea they've got something wrong with them, they give them a pill as a placebo. It's a fake pill. And it's just a, a false piece. Just to say, well, I'll take something. This will help you. And it'll overcome their, their mindset and they'll think all's well. Those things happen, by the way. People go to ERs and they get wrongly diagnosed. They all's well and they go home and die. And sometimes people are given fake medicine that really does nothing for them at all. 
And that's like false religion. I'm sure there's people sitting in churches today listening to preachers and, and they're, to, they're told, all's well with you. You're nice people. You're good people. And God is a God of love and you're all his children. All is well. And someone might say, well, I don't, I, I feel, I feel God, I'm not good enough. And they say, well, uh, well, maybe you need a few little lessons, a few steps, self-help steps that will get you into the proper mood about yourself. Religionists do that all the time. But you'll notice that the gospel, Paul did not do that. He did not tell these people all was well and that nothing was required. He preached to them about righteousness and he preached to them about their need to be just with God. Now, what can we say here about God's righteousness? Let's just calmly think through this. If it's God's righteousness, it can't be ours. It has to be something outside of ourselves. Theologians call it alien righteousness, something that's foreign to us. It's a way outside of us. It's not something that can be, can be weaved by my hands or my fingers. It can't be anything of my doing because it's God's righteousness. It also must be provided by God. He must do it. Now, did he do it? What has God done to provide a perfect righteousness for you and me? His son, a sinless savior. Not only did he not sin, but he did righteousness. All of his life was a life of perfect obedience. Obedience to the law. Delighting in the will of the Father. His life pleased the Father to the very jot and tittle of every detail that was required. He was the perfectly righteous one. And God accepts the righteousness, the perfections, the goodness, the perfect works of his Son. To be transferred to our account. See, the gospel is really about a double transfer. When I lived in Vancouver, we lived at the ocean. And Vancouver is a port city. And then the mountain would run right up the side, north Vancouver, right up to the ski slopes. And you could drive part way, you could hike the rest of it, or you could get a gondola and go right up to the top. And look down over the city. And you would see ships that would come in from various parts of the world with different merchandise. And they would dock out in the, in the English Bay, it was called. Then they would get called into the port and the cranes would go to work unloading the ships. If you were close by, you could see the water line changing. As the ships got lighter and lighter, the load was taken off. Now that's what our Lord Jesus does for us. He takes our sins off us. But those ships don't leave the port empty. They may have to wait a day or two to get a new load, and they'll move over to the other dock on the northern side where there is grain or lumber or whatever it is, and they will get reloaded. And then they're sent off to their new destination with a new load. They don't go empty. When the Lord saves us, he transfers our sins. They are imputed to the Lord Jesus. We were not left empty. All his righteousness, his good works, are transferred and imputed to us. And then we're ready for a new destination. Glory, fitted for heaven in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus. 
Now you'll notice in verse 17 that this righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We call it faith alone. Now I must say that this is something of a difficulty when you read this, faith to faith. It it reads like faith to faith. It's like job to job or work to work or morning to morning or idea to idea. It, it, It seems like something progressive, but it's not. It's not. Faith to faith. Nor is it future final justification as promoted by some slick liberals. In present day modern evangelicalism, this is a perverse idea and notion that is promoted by so many. And they call it our final justification. They talk about present justification and then final justification. They call it like faith to faith, that it's progressive, as if it's piecemeal. A little bit today, a little bit tomorrow, and then finally there's an assessment to see if we are justified sufficiently, if we're being justified enough. Now, I know you know that's contrary to biblical reformation, gospel preaching and teaching. It's contrary to what Luther taught on justification that shook the world in his day and liberated multitudes out of the darkness of Rome. That's not what Martin Luther taught. And it's not what John Calvin taught. It's not what the Reformers and the Puritans taught. That this is a justification a little bit by a little bit. They taught justification by faith as an act of God done once, fully and finally. So, why is the idea of a future justification all wrong? I think we have to answer that. I would not be doing you service by opening up this can of worms and not answering that question right now. Firstly, because it's not true that justification comes by a gradual increase of faith. Now, we know that when we're converted and we're born again, we've got a baby faith. Childlike faith, we call it. It's Really, without a lot of knowledge, but we've got sufficient knowledge to be able to enjoy salvation. But we have to grow. We have to get stronger. We have to learn more. But that does not mean that we are justified more when we've got more faith. Or that we're more justified a year later or 10 years later, or at the end of life. Why is that? Because justification is not our work at all. It's not what we do. It's what God has done. He provides it, and he provides it through his Son, who is our worker. He fulfilled the covenant of works. He fulfilled all everything required. So all of the righteousness of our Lord Jesus is given to every single believer at the point upon which we believe. Now you'll notice here that Paul quoted in Habakkuk, or in this statement, the just shall live by faith, from Habakkuk 2.4. The just shall live by faith. Now again, some will say that smacks of you've got to grow in faith. You've got to add to it. You've got to abound in it and so on. The just shall live by faith. And they think that that therefore means you get justified at the end, not at the beginning. But that doesn't make sense. Because what does it say here? 
The just shall live by faith. Now, who are the just? The justified. The one that's already made right. The Christian. The person that has called upon the Lord to give them salvation full and free and to give them all the standing that they need with God. They're made just or justified immediately. And then we live by faith. We stand on that foundation. We never want to leave it. We build on that foundation. Now we get stronger in our ability to converse and to witness and to communicate and share this glorious truth. At first we're lost for words. It's just so wonderful. And there's the Bible. And there's the Bible. That's about as much as you can say. Whatever Paul said, that's it. That's enough for me. And as we grow in grace and knowledge, we're able to expand on that and talk about what the catechism teaches, what uh, the definitions of salvation are. We live by faith. We go on to enjoy this righteousness. And yes, we can say we enjoy it more and more as we grow in knowledge. But we don't have more of it. The new convert that's saved today has as much of the righteousness of Christ applied to his life as in 20, 30, 50 years from now. And so boy or girl, young person here today, you are equally justified as your mom and dad. You have everything that Christ gives to his people that your grandparents might have. Or even your great-grandparents already in glory. The person in heaven has no more righteousness than the boy or girl who calls on the Lord to be justified now. Now, as believers in Christ, we're not on a stairway climbing higher by their own effort. We are waiting, yes, for glory, but we're not waiting to be justified. It's now, right now. I want to tell you something about that word now. I've discovered in the book of Romans that it's the key to this whole subject. Now. Would you turn to chapter 3, verse 20? Chapter 3, 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. So you can see that the subject is justification. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. That word now is not just a particle, a part of grammar that moves you from one thing to the next. Sometimes we talk about now, now we've got to turn to this, now we'll do that. We use now very freely. But this word now, for those who like to know the Greek, is nun, N-U-N. And it's actually very helpful because it's a time-based word. Now, at this point of time, and it's almost getting close to noon right now, by noon, I should be stopped preaching, or the food might be in trouble. There's a point in time now. And as you go through this book of Romans, you will find that the apostle builds on this. Now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, 
So it is right for me to say, I am saved now, this moment. And I have all the justification that I ever need right now. And in that very word, there is full acceptance, full salvation right now. Let's go to chapter 4 and see how Paul uses this again. Chapter 4, verse 3. What saith the scripture? Abram believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Past tense, done. It's not something being done. It's not in the present, it's in the past. He was counted righteous in the very sight of God. And then chapter 4, verse 24. Or 23, that's the one we must not miss. Verse 23. For therefore is the, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone. I have to be square here. The word now in verse 23 is not noon. It's D, D-E. It's a conjunction word. It's joining the two things together. And that's why the, the noon is so specific. It's so a, such a precise term at the right place. And as you read verse 22 and 23, you can see how they differ. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. And then he's moving on. It's a different topic. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And then chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, that's past, it's done. We have peace with God. We're not waiting for a final assessment. We're not on probation. We're not holding out to see what happens. We have peace with God. Then we go to verse 9, chapter 5. Much more than being now justified by his blood. And the word now is noon. Now at this point in time. Much more than being at this point in time justified by his blood. And that's where Martin Luther and the reformers got their doctrine of justification by faith alone. In a provided righteousness completed all sufficient by God that we receive as God's total gift by faith alone. And the moment you receive it, you are justified, declared to be righteous in the sight of God. And one more example, Romans 8 verse 1, a well-known verse. There is therefore now, the word is noon, now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And so here it is put somewhat in the negative side. There's no condemnation. The guilt is gone. We're free. We're declared righteous at this moment. In the depths of your soul right now, would you thank God for that gospel? Would you thank God in your heart and say, this is so glorious. This makes the difference from a faith gospel to a works religion. This is the difference between Christianity in its fullness and false cults and false religions that are so manifold. And God here has solved the problem of sin's curse and man's condemnation by a complete righteousness given to you and me by faith now. You can say, I'm right with God today, now, at this time. 
And all of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus has been transferred to me. And I know my destination. I know I'm not carrying around a load of sin. I know that to my account is all the perfections, the merits of the Son of God to my account. And I am on my way to glory. That's the thrill of this wonderful justification. Now, I'll still try and finish this sermon before noon, but we have one more point. Verse 18. For the wrath of God, the wrath of God, Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That's why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. That's why he wanted to preach it. He was a debtor to Greeks and barbarians and all who needed this gospel. They are under God's wrath. And we have got to never forget that before we were given the righteousness of Christ, we were under God's wrath. We were cursed by sin. We were at a distance from God. But now, right now, we have this glorious salvation. But there are people all around us. And when you go to the mall or drive along the freeway and you see the the untold numbers of people, multitudes are living daily under God's wrath constantly. No matter what their walk of life, they may be an executive who walk into the finest business suite on a Monday morning. Or they could be the drug addict on the street that's just balled over in pain and misery under the wrath of God. And so we are called to preach this gospel. We are to call all men to faith in the Lord Jesus. And you know John Romans 1 well enough that Paul set out here to expound this doctrine thoroughly. The wrath of God upon all men. And then in chapter, in chapter 1, it's Gentiles he has in mind. In chapter 2, he points out Jews too. They are under God's wrath. Jews need the Savior. That's the teaching of Romans chapter 2. And we have this great gospel. You remember the story of the prophet in Israel who said, tomorrow wheat will be sold, rock bottom, cheap. Nobody believed him. And the lepers who were outside the walls, they decided, there are Syrians down there and they've got all kinds of food. We don't do something, we're going to die of hunger. So they went down. And of course, during the night, these Syrians, they heard terrible sounds and they fled. They were gone. And these lepers went into the camp and they were just feasting themselves, having a great time. What a a haul, what a find. And as they gorged themselves, one said, we do not well. Think of our people behind the walls of the city. And they've been reduced to cannibalism due to hunger. We've got to go tell them. We've got to go tell them what's here. And when we see someone under the wrath of God who know not the gospel, there's got to be something in us that says we've got to tell them. We owe them the gospel. We have it so good. We are so rejoicing. And we come into the church and we sing our heads off and rejoice in what the Lord has done for us. But we've got to tell the world. And of course, that's why it's nice for Beulah and me to come in this month and join you as you pray for our missionaries. 
and it's the same missionaries. And we pray for our churches and our preachers and our students that are in the seminary. We, we have a burden that this gospel will go out to the world. And the Lord uses his church and the arms of the mission work and the arms of seminary and the arms of church plants. And we ought to be rejoicing that, that, that we're a part of a movement where we know in our churches God's people are saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And it takes us onto the streets. It takes us to bring, go and fetch people and bring them in to hear the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And no wonder in Rome... Their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world, verse 8. Their faith was spoken of. They didn't keep it quiet. What was happening in Rome had punch to it. We need to pray for that in our churches. We need to pray that that our witness will not just be a, a defense of the faith in an inner dying out experience but that God will give us gospel thrust to reach a world that is lost and we need to be not ashamed the first thing that we need to be saved from is to be saved from ourselves our own pride our own selfishness our own ego we need to die on the altar of self And offer up ourselves as a sacrifice to God and say, Lord, make my life to be a vessel. I think that's the least that any Christian can pray. Lord, make my life a vessel. A vessel of service. A clay vessel, yes. Weak and limited, but make me your vessel. And surely the Lord can use us and give us this testimony as they had at Rome that our faith became spoken of throughout the whole world. God bless you. God be with you in your service for the Lord. Now, we're going to be together for the remainder of the day and and, and the service tonight. And uh, we're looking forward to all of that. But I, I, I close with this thrust. Do something to reach the souls of men. Surely God will bless the church that is doing something to reach the souls of men. I was blessed yesterday going out around the doors and I met a grandmother sitting on the on the driveway. She was watching two grandchildren. She lived in Prescott and she was down here visiting and she was watching her two grandchildren climbing in and out of a vehicle. They had the tailgate up and they were coming in and out. And I went over to talk to her and she turned out to be a Christian, a very unashamed Christian. And then the little boy, he came out and he wanted a leaflet too. And the grandmother said, you have Jesus in your heart, don't you? And Happily, he said, yes, I do. And there, as I left them, they were both reading this leaflet as I left. Now, where was I going with this? What was my application to that point? Children, yes. There's an old adage. If you don't prepare the cry room, you'll never get babies. You got to prepare the cry room. You got to make a place and pray, Lord, make this a nursery. And you want your church to be a nursery. And God will bring people in that they will hear this gospel, be nurtured in it, grow and abound. That's what God wants in every one of his true churches. And may the Lord help every one of us. 
Now, a number of our congregations are small and finances are tight and manpower is limited. I think that's one of the most frequent prayers in our presbytery prayer meetings is, Lord, give us men. Men who will become deacons, elders, to serve in our local churches. Give us helpers in God's work. And then, of course, we pray for young men to be called to the preaching ministry. There's a constant prayer going up to God. Lord, give us men to serve in his church. And I balance that with behind every good man, there's a good woman. And I'll pay tribute to that today. I could never have preached the gospel for 43 years without the full support of Beulah. And likewise, men cannot give themselves to serve God without that happy and prayerful support of their helpmate. May God bless every one of you with that great joy and blessing. Father, we rejoice today in ministering this gospel. We rejoice, O Lord, that we can come with the greatest news the world has ever known, that God has provided full salvation from A to Z, from he is the Alpha and the Omega, the author and finisher of our faith. We give worship and praise unto him who loved us, died for us, rose again, and praise God, shall yet come again to receive us into glory. Wilt thou bless this word to our hearts, bless this congregation day by day, week by week, and minister to us through this, the Lord's day. Bless our fellowship together, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with your people now and evermore. Amen. Amen.